Blog Talk Radio. Om Shabbat Shalom, Holy Way of the Most High. Om Shabbat Shalom, I sense your presence. Om Shabbat Shalom, Holy Way of the Most High. Om Shabbat Shalom, I sense your presence. And I am the light within your soul In the essence of truth and right Love makes the circle whole And here we stand in line Waiting for some sacred sign But to find the balance is the purpose of this time to restore the balance of the universal mind And in the presence of my Lord of light and love Everything I see aspiring to be free And when I call to thee And come on bending knee Surrender to the all-pervading light and love Reflections of the one surrounding me with love And I sense your presence I sense your presence I sense your presence I sense your presence Within and without Above and below, yeah East, west, north and south I sense your presence Without and within Below and above, yeah, yeah East, west, north and south I sense your presence I sense your presence Of 
Or to find the balance is the purpose of this time To restore the balance of the universal mind And I sense your presence I sense your presence I sense your presence I sense your presence Activating Compassion Radio. My name is Jesse Ann Nichols George, and I'm your hostess today. The music you were listening to at the beginning of the show is I Sense Your Presence. It's by Shenshai. And I just want to extend a welcome to everybody that's here with us, whether you've listened to the show before and you enjoy what we do and you're coming back and returning because you want to find out what we're doing today, or uh, those that are joining us here for the very first time. We do stream live in three additional places, Talk Stream Live, Stream Finder, and Penn, also known as Parent Counters Network. And I welcome everyone listening through those channels, as well as those that are catching our show in the archives, be it through TuneIn.com, iTunes, or through my YouTube channel. Here at Activating Compassion Radio, what I do is I look at the different ways that compassion exists in our lives. How to remove our blocks, resistances, frustrations, and more. And some weeks I'm discussing different aspects of how compassion is in our life, how it affects our life, and the different areas of compassion. And some weeks we're doing more exercises, practical implementations, and many times, today's no exception, I have great guests on the show so that you can learn about how their work and other things work with compassion and and how they complement compassion. I also highlight different musical artists along the way. I've had some uh, Grammy nominees, Stephen Halpern, Peter Cater. Uh, this year, I'm working with musical artists around the seasons. We had Woven Green with Jim and Ashley Cash. And just a couple of weeks ago, we had Angelia Grace on the show. Beautiful celestial voice there. So definitely check out those archives as well. In my own work, what I do is I help people find and use compassion in their everyday lives. I've created the Genesis Clearing Statement, and if you've missed that, you can go onto my website and find on, um, on my media page there under the radio shows where other people have interviewed me, and we'll have some of the interviews have that in it. I've also authored four books, the most recent being You, Me, Life Dreams and its companion workbook, and then my first two books, Activating Compassion and its companion workbook. And in addition to that, I have a fifth book coming out that I'm a co-author on called Embraced by the Divine. So watch for that because we are moving our way through the publishing process on that. 
In addition, I've created the Compassion Tour, which is a multi-state nationwide tour, including workshops, retreats, seminars, book signings, and fundraising events. And definitely, I am on tour now. Matter of fact, I'm hanging out in the Quad Cities area of the Illinois-Iowa border range. And, you know, I'm on tour. I'm happy to connect with people. If you have a group or a club or something like that, you say, hey, Jesse, I would just love it if you would come and share my your work with us and, and my group. And, you know what, contact me because I'll be happy to see if it's something I can work out when I'm going through your area. I would love to do that. And you can follow, by the way, all the events as well as everything else that I'm working on right now on my website at jessianmicholsgeorge1.com. Just a reminder, if you enjoy the show today, it's certain you share it with people, tell people about it, friends, family, whoever, connections on Facebook, you know, whoever you feel inspired to share it with. Because I know when I share a show, every time I put it out there, there's somebody that comes back and goes, this is fascinating, this is interesting, I was just talking about this, this is really helpful. You never know whose life you're going to make a difference for just by clicking the share link. They can use the same link that you use to get into our live show, and they can listen to it at their convenience, as well as catching it in any of the other formats, such as our podcast on iTunes, TuneIn.com, and also uh, my YouTube channel. So before we get started, one of the things I like to do, and those that have listened before know that I do this, and and uh, that is to delve into the book called The 72 Names of God by Yehuda Berg, who's a Kabbalah master. And with this, I also take and post each week uh, information from Yehuda that we do on my page of the Main Street Universe tab on my website, jessianmicholsgeorge1.com. That way you can go back and reflect on it throughout the week. So this week's message, and, and I love how these things, even though they're not picked specifically for the guests, they always come out fitting into our guest. <laughs> And this week's message is appreciation. That's the common name of God. And the formal name of God that we have on this is Ayen Nun Vat. Okay, so common name appreciation, the formal name is Ayen Nun Vat. And the initial message that he provides here is, do you find that you appreciate things only after they're gone? Do you look back over parts of your life wishing you had valued and cherished the things that are no longer there? And the insight that he provides here is, here's a simple question. Do you have a desire not to have an excruciating toothache? Of course you do. Who in their right mind wants to experience a throbbing toothache? But a moment before this question was posed, were you at all aware of this desire? Of course not. And do you know why? It's because your desire not to have a toothache was completely fulfilled. Mainly, you didn't have a toothache, so there was no need to be aware of your innate desire not to have one. If, on the other hand, you had an abscess molar that was causing you much agony, you'd quickly become aware of your desire not to want to have a toothache. We have so many blessings in our lives that fulfill our existence, but we're not aware of these spiritual treasures because our fulfillment leads us to complacency. We take important things for granted. Consequently, we must lose, we must lose something in order to awaken our desire for it. 
Remember the light wants to give us everything, but we must have a desire for it. When we experience the pain of losing something dear to our hearts, a desire is awakened within us. But there is a far better way to activate all our desires for light without having to lose something. It's called appreciation. When we truly appreciate everything, we feel like we have it all. And that's when we are allowed to really have it all. Now, the meditation he provides on this is appreciation, thankfulness, gratitude. These noble attributes are aroused by this name. Infused with these attributes, you retain and enjoy all the blessings and treasures in your life. So again, that's posted on my page for the Main Street Universe tab on my website, Jessica Nichols George, and you can go back and reflect on that throughout the week. Now, a little uh, thought here for us for that from our guest on. And this will just kind of get you going kind of in the direction of our topic today and kind of open your mind up and, and get your, your mind thinking and ready to receive what our guest has to share with us. Can you recall a time of bittersweetness in your life? Do you have experiences that break your heart but then also provide new loving experiences? Does letting go of something or someone mean that we don't care or are abandoning them? Life can be filled with many tough choices and many choices that we would prefer not to face. While we, have, while we all have an aspect of creating the circumstances that we live in, there are many that come to us by the choices of others. We can easily assume those, those choices were easy for that person to make or come from a selfish space. However, more times than not, those choices are rarely easy. In these days and times, souls are leaving our earth in what appears to be a rapid rate. It is no longer just those that have lived out their days, but those that are going in a variety of circumstances and are uh, of a variety of ages. And however, what I'm looking at here are not only those that are leaving, but those that are remaining. No matter what generation or time one lives in, life will present its challenges, within which will be sorrows and blessings. And that, of course, can lead to numerous more discussions. People are being required to face and deal with circumstances and choices that they never thought they would have to make in their lifetime. Choices that they know are for the best, but not always the most pleasant or comfortable to deal with. Dr. Katana Tully addresses this type of choice in her book, Blood at the Root, where she shares about the choice her birth mother made to give her up at birth, and the experience of being raised in a family of different culture and color. Her journey in this process leads us to recognize how much heart and love there can be in doing what is best. It reminds us the trust from all involved that sweetness can be found in the bitterness of the initial pain and the conflict that we often need to overcome in our choices. Whether it has been a person, a pet, or a situation, most of us have had to make choices to let go of something that perhaps we didn't feel ready to let go of. Perhaps we felt forced to as things came up unexpectedly and we came face to face with our own human limitations. Our soul certainly knows that we will be able to move on and make the best of it. However, 
our head can often keep us in the torment of it. In addition, few today get the opportunity to grieve these processes. And having people or situations leave our lives due to death or having to go a different direction needs to be given the time to go through such as a process. It is in my, in part my belief that nothing can truly be released without there being strong love in the situation, love of self and love of others, although it can be cloaked in many different shapes and be triggered by what appears to be other emotions such as anger, frustration, or even revenge, there is still a love at the bottom of it all. In reality, we tend to hold on to that which we do not love, such as an addiction, instead of that which we love, although it can easily get twisted around. How do you find the sweetness and the bitterness? And have you been able to find strength in making the choices that are necessary, even when they are not what you desire and ones that others may not understand? Have you been able to find strength in the sense of helplessness that can happen in the bitterness? This week, our guest focuses on a component of compassion related to the aspect in my book that mind, death, and defensive. And this reminds us that every situation has something to teach us. It reminds us that those that we feel attacked and rejected or even disinherited by are struggling with their own judgment and resentment, and that their struggles are much bigger than ourselves. I'm going to take a short break, and when we return, I will have Dr. Katana Tully, and she's going to be sharing her work in Lit at the Root. The song I've got for you during our break is called Remember in the Silence. It's by Claire Hedin, and uh, you can definitely connect with more of Claire's work at her website, www.clairehedin.com. That's C-L-A-R-E-H-E-D-I-N.com. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes.
And welcome back. You are listening to Activating Compassion Radio. And my name is Jesse Ann Nichols George, and I'm your hostess today. You were just listening to a song by Claire Hadine called Remember in the Silence. And you can check out more of Claire's work through her website at www.clairehedin.com. That's C-L-A-R-E-H-E-D-I-N.com. Today I have with me Dr. Katana Tolle, who grew up trilingual, speaking German, Spanish, and English in Guatemala. In 10th grade, she entered a boarding school in Jamaica, Wisconsin, and received her advanced level higher school certificate from Cambridge University, England. Expecting to become an international interpreter, she continued her studies at Sprachen and Dolmetscher Institute in Munich, Germany. And however, she was also called to work in a play and discovered her affinity for the dramatic arts. She became the actress and fashion model Katana Cayetano, appearing in film and TV in Germany, Austria, and Italy. In upstate New York, she completed a Bachelor of Arts degree in Cultural Studies, a Master of Arts degree in Latin American and Caribbean Literature, and a Doctorate of Arts in Humanistic Studies. She was a tenured associate professor at SUNY Empire State College and in retirement returned to work in ESC's Center for International Programs, serving as mentor and instructor in the Lebanon program and interim program director for the Dominican Republic. In 2011, she dedicated herself to publishing Split at the Root. She is currently preparing an academic uh, version discussing the psychological issues embedded in the memoir, and we're going to look today at her work in Split at the Root. And you can definitely learn more about Dr. Katana Tully and her work at www letsattheroot.com, as well as on her own website, www.katanatully.com, and that's C-A-T-A-N-A-T-U-L-L-Y.com. And Katana, it is absolutely wonderful to have you here today on Activating Compassion Radio. Thank you so much. I am delighted to be here. (laughs) I remember connecting with you through my group on Facebook, the Spiritual Nourishment Network, and I started watching what you were posting, and I'm like, this person is really, I love the way they're presenting themselves. I love what's going on here, and I can really respect what they're putting forth. So I would love for you to share a little bit with our listeners about how you got to this point of writing this book, you know, why make it a memoir as opposed to a different type of story, and, you know, what really finally got you to cross over and go, yeah, okay, I'm going to write a book on this. Um, Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk about this. And um, it is something that I began some 20 years ago, really, when um, interracial adoption started becoming popular. I have a very long trajectory as, uh, in that experience uh, because I was uh, adopted when I was a child uh, in um, 1940. So you can, you know, I, I hate saying how old I am, but um, <laughs> I, I'm 
unfortunately not as old as my my the numbers <laughs> would uh, would would imply. So I've had a very long life, and I've had a very long successful life. When people started adopting children, um, I, that did not look like themselves. I empathize for parents and children because although um, in my particular case, my my German upbringing was a tremendous blessing. Uh, by the time I was an adult, I did not know who I was as a black person. Obviously, I didn't mention that I'm black, but uh, I didn't I didn't know who I was as a black person. I identified as German. I identified as white. I identified with the privileged position that uh, my family afforded me. And so when I came to the United States, I was 35 years old, uh, I just didn't understand that in America I needed to say I was black. <laughs> no, because here you have, you have to say you're black or you have to say you're Hispanic or you have to say you're white, you, have, you know, Caucasian or whatnot. And that little box was too limiting because I had a nationality as far as I was concerned. Uh, and then it turned out that I probably uh, should have some therapy. And I had 12 years of therapy uh, in which I had to confront an awful lot of, um, of self-denial, uh, and uh, learn about being black, learn black history. I did. I realized I didn't have to identify as black, but I needed to have the empathy for the situation of black people. And slowly uh, but surely, I learned how to adjust to what I found most objectionable about me. And... Um, and so uh, once I saw that so many white families in Europe, in the States, wherever their white families uh, were adopting dark children uh, or children from Asia or brown children from Latin America or such, I decided that it was time that I wrote my story down. And that is why it is a memoir. It, and it is a memoir it's a thematic memoir. It's not just my life story. It is the issues embedded in my life story that uh, show the conflict within me. So part of the success of the book is that the reader, whether whatever race or age, male or female, can understand because they're following me. They're follow. I'm I'm quite open with everything. Not quite, but I'm entirely open with how I felt. And some people say, "Wow, is she a spoiled brat?" And then others just feel so sorry for someone who could feel the way she felt about so many things. And that is why it is a thematic memoir. It's a memoir that deals with the theme of loss identity, and a lot of love, you know, because my, um, parents adopt children, they love their children, and then they don't know necessarily what to do with them, because the kids start displaying 
um, a lot of self-hatred. My German parents didn't know really what to do with me as a teenager when they felt very bad about the way I expressed myself about things. And so they thought, well, the best thing we can do is send her to a society where there are black people, and then she will get a better opinion of uh, of black people and such. And so I was sent to boarding school in Jamaica, where, again, it was an international boarding school, and I rotated around uh, white people rather than the darker ones. And uh, so um, I needed to come to the States and totally confront this very racialized society that the United States presents, and within that society get to read black literature, empathize with black, with black music, empathize with the history I mean, I started teaching the representation of blacks in Western art <laughs> or um, uh, looking at the literature of the Caribbean and uh, negritude. And all of that, I became extremely proud of the products that Africa has basically disseminated in the world, in this entire diaspora, wherever you find people of African descent. So... I, does that say something? It says a lot, doesn't it? It, <laughs> it does talk, say talk, talk, talk. <laughs> it does say a lot, and I think I think you're very accurate in in saying there's so much racial bias and things in the U.S. And you know, it's coming from every side. It's not you know just one culture or race. It's coming from every side, and they're very hung here on the U.S. of you're black, you're white, you're Hispanic, you're this, you're that. And I've always been one of those people that have looked at things and said, yeah, I think it's important to honor culture, but I, <laughs> at the same time, we're all people. And, you know, um, you, you know, it's more about who we are than than just a skin tonation or things like that, because I've had several black friends growing up, and I always had friends of different ethnicities growing up. Um, I found them far more interesting in some ways, <laughs> just to learn about all their different perspectives. And um, so, it, it, yeah, it definitely fascinates me um, in this aspect. And you brought up a point, I think we all have things within us that, we reject or that we feel objectionable to or not comfortable with. And you brought up a great point about needing to adjust to what is most objectionable in you. Maybe you can share a little bit about how you do that because I think that's a big thing that a lot of people get challenged by along the way. Yes, uh, that's what uh, what has happened. I've I've had so many people uh, engage with me when it comes to identity, um, and it doesn't matter because you you can be the <laughs> your your sense of who you are is um, created 
very early in your life. That's one of the things that is totally fascinating from the psychological perspective. So, for instance, who are you if you are the third child of eight? Or if you're the, uh, if you have three brothers and you're the only girl, or you're the only girl and then three brothers came after you. You know, I mean, it has nothing to do with color or religion or anything like that. It is, maybe it's just the placement in the family that you have, that, that you wrangle with. <laughs> so identity is something extraordinary. And I have found that what helps is just really taking the time and listening to um, to help people feel about themselves and then give them a pretty good sense of the benefits of their peculiar, their particular situation. You know, and that's what, what is wonderful. When it's not your situation, you can see the benefits and you can help out in a way. Yeah, that identity piece is huge. <laughs> and and I've always found that by going back into those early years, I agree that that's where everything, a lot of what we work with in life stems out of those early years um, in there. And it's... I think it does. I mean, and, and there's so many variables to me because you've got kids that are raised in the same family, but they kind of, you know, they're totally different. Um, how they feel about themselves is totally different. So you're kind of placing that with where they are in the family order. Yeah, well, it just it, it's the easiest to grasp for others. If you're an only child, let's say, you know, this this concern about your parents that you don't have anyone to bounce things off against. It's a very different situation to uh, someone who has a brother or sister. Then it's two of you against two of the big ones. <laughs> and it's, very, um, it, it's, it's one of these things. Of course, you don't know by the time you're two whether you're going to be an only child or, you know, or not. Um, and uh, you, you pretty much... That's why oftentimes you find that the firstborn child is the most serious of the of the children within the family because um, it was very seriously observed by the parents when it was little. And so it becomes responsible. You know, the first child is always the most responsible of them all because it had that privileged position of being an only child for a while and that's the identity and then as the only child then it would take care of the siblings and it would be concerned about the younger ones so that's just when it comes to who am I you know when you have to say well who am I let's just start looking who am I within my family who am I within my community who am I within my country or my race or my political belief or within my religion such, you know, it's just a who am I bit and how am I and how do I like it or dislike it mm-hmm. Interesting and, you know, I think I think definitely that's two things that a lot of people probably most people out there struggle with, you know, they're, they're adults and they still don't 
know who they are <laughs> and how they are um, in there. You know, they, they, I think a lot of people, they haven't connected with that identity within themselves. And that leaves them kind of in this fluctuating space, I would say. Yes, I think that that is very much the case. It's one of the things that I've started to blog about um, based on a very interesting, um, uh, what is it? Uh, It was an interview. It was a luncheon. They were sitting around talking. And there was Malidoma Somé. He is uh, an African from the um, Dagara in West Africa, the, the people. Uh, and um, he talked about us knowing, humans knowing what our purpose in life is when we come down to earth. It's just that we forget it. And in Africa, they have initiation rites. Once they, re- once the children reach, you know, puberty, and that is a reminder through initiation, which is rules sometimes. But it connects, it, it disconnects the spirit from the body, and by such gets the information from spirit as to what the purpose and the objective is. And we don't have that. You know, we don't have that that ritual. We don't have anything. We have, you know, what career counselors. They don't know. It's you who knows who you know, who knows it, but we don't know how to access that so often. And that is where our sense of identity gets lost as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, because if we're not if we're not doing any kind of ceremony along the way, um, if we're not doing anything that um, helps us understand or connects us with the people around us, be that family or culture or groups or country or whatever it is, belief, um, it's going to be very hard to have a sense of identity uh, in there. Yeah, it's it's very hard to distill who you are. There's so many layers to you. Uh, What people expect of you, what your parents expect of you, what your teachers expect, what the community, what your church expects. And those are all these coatings of expectations that have to be removed to get to the core of, okay, um, who am I? Um, I have, just in my case, if I may, uh, I, I didn't know. My parents were stumped with me, my, my German parents. Um, I, I was fluent in languages. I grew up speaking three languages. By the time I was five, I think I spoke three languages fluently, certainly two languages fluently, and I knew who to speak what language with. I didn't just mix the languages. I, I knew who to speak what with. And um, then I... Um, then... When I, when, you know, when, when, what career, it was the most obvious that I would become an interpreter because at least that way my German parents figured she can, she can earn a living. But I wanted to become an actress at the time. 
and I was in a country where I spoke this fluent German. Uh, I was pretty cute when I was young, and before you knew it, out of college, I, I was recruited to become an actress. Those were the expectations of the Germans who saw me. And I never had to audition for a part. I was, you know, I was always handed parts, beautiful parts, gorgeous parts in, in film, television, on stage. And I had a really wonderful career going for me. And then um, I married my husband, who was white, incidentally, and we had a child. We have a biracial child. Uh, and then came to the States at an age where I really didn't feel like being an actress anymore because guess what? It wasn't what I wanted to be. I was very late in life. I realized what I want to be is I think I'm really good at teaching. (laughs) So I became (laughs) an educator. And when I look back, I realize I have always had that kind of antenna towards being the one that's there telling the others to sit down and write their name down and let me see how you wrote it. And how are these? You know, when I was a little kid, I was already playing teacher, but nobody really hooked <laughs> into that <laughs> until so much later when all the layers, when all the years of therapy just helped me to get to who are you? My therapist never told me. She was wise enough to stay away. But, it, you know, in the end, I was extremely happy to find something that had nothing to do with the glitz and glamour um, and, and fashion and appearance and, you know, accolades, none of that. Just be a teacher in a classroom. So, you know... That is uh, when it comes to the layers that are coated on you. Like clothes. As a fashion model, while I was in Europe, I never bought clothes because I always was doing fashion shows as well. And I wore the most beautiful clothes. I never had, when we came to the States, I wasn't a fashion uh, person anymore. My husband would dress me. He would (laughs) And he'd come home with suitcases. And, And now that he isn't here anymore... I hate going shopping. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I keep my clothes forever. It's a nightmare to go and have to buy clothes. And, I, you know, I have three blazers, white shirts, jeans, and that's my uniform. <laughs> and sweaters. <laughs> you know, don't think about it. Don't make me think about things that, because I was accustomed to being dressed. I was... My German parents dressed me. In boarding school, we had a uniform. Then I went and became a model. So before you knew it, you know, I always was complying with how society saw me. And, I, think um, that, yeah. I think that's something that people can really relate to because um, so many times we are we're, we're taught growing up that, you know, you, you do what gets you approval. You do what you're trusting all these people around you, be it parents or older siblings or authority figures to guide you in the right direction, so to say, and and to help you. And so oftentimes we 
when we start into college, if we go to college or things like that, we we do what uh, what we think will make them happy more often than what will just simply make us happy. And um, yeah. so, yeah, I, I think that's big. Yeah, exactly, because we're not rooted in who we are. And what I like also about this African approach is that the parents absolutely respect what the child, it's still a child, an adolescent, you know, at least in Africa it's already not so much a child as we consider it a child. Um, people uh, mature much earlier um, than in, uh, in our society, particularly the United States. So, um, and, and uh, they respect, and, and the parents, the community, further the child. It's their duty to help the child on the path to become the best that it can. That's kind of cool. <laughs> you know, it's well, not a matter of, you become a lawyer because that's best for you, or you study medicine, or you, uh, you know, you become like your dad, you become a butcher like your dad, you know? No. Right. And there, is, and there is a lot of that pressure in uh, many affluent families, at least in the U.S., that, uh, or, or even, say, like in the Asian culture, you will become a doctor, you will become a scientist, you will become this, you know, it, it's, and and in some of the countries out there, they tell you what you're going to be and what you're going to study. <laughs> you know, there isn't yes. a choice. This is what you're going to do. You'll go to, you know, upper education. You will not go to upper education. You'll do a trade. I mean, it's um Yeah, it's you'll a very become what your uncle did. You know, you have a talent for that. You go and do it. I have a very good friend here. Uh, she's much younger. She could easily be my, my daughter. Well, all of my friends could be my children, <laughs> uh, which is great. I love it. Um, but she, too, she studied law. She's a lawyer. She's brilliantly intelligent. And But what does she do? She is a yoga instructor. She takes people on hikes. Then she does wedding ceremonies. And, um, and I said, well, why did you bother with law? She said, to please my dad. So she mm. went through the whole ordeal of becoming a lawyer. She worked in a law for, firm for two years and then skipped out, came west, and leads this very eclectic, uncomplicated, as far as she's concerned, as far as anyone who sees her type of life. I think it's, uh, it's amazing. You know, She wasted a whole lot of years doing what her dad wanted her to be or pleasing her dad with whatever. I think a lot of us do along the way. A lot of us do. We don't just, you know, and even when we have parents that say, well, do what you want to do. It's okay, you know. But you can tell it's not okay. <laughs> and yeah. you can, you know, you can see those things. Like, because I know there were times that I thought, maybe I won't go to college because, you know, I'm not sure if that's the right thing for me. And yet I I knew that for my parents it was very important that I went to college. And so, you know, of course, I studied recreation and leisure studies <laughs> business management. But, um, 
you know, is kind of fun in that sense. Now, it's interesting because you have talked very favorably here about some of the practices of the African culture, but you have a point, I believe it's in your book, that you share an experience when you were very young of your biological mother taking you to your village or to her village, and you didn't like that. Oh, I, I I was too young to tell. Um, it's my German mother who didn't like that because my mother was, you know, like a young mother. She's proud of her baby, and she took me down the hill, and she showed me in, around, and by the time I came back in the evening, I had a high fever because heaven knows what I was fed or what juice I was given to drink, and I had this horrifically high temperature that um, my German mother just, swallowed me in ice cold, you know, ice packs and whatnot to bring the temperature down. And from that point on, my birth mother was never allowed to to take me back to the village to to show me to her friends or anything. That was done. <laughs> Out of the question. Oh, you don't do you don't know how to take care of the child. And I that that is something that must have from all I can tell must have had uh, an important um, kind of what, what would I say? It must have been important for me as a little child. It must have, it was something that was transmitted subliminally, you know, something that I absorbed without understanding why that the black mother was inferior because she couldn't take care of me, and that mm. black were inferior compared to whites. And so these things, and, and that's why I write about them, because that is how very, very early on a child begins to start looking at who am I and how, how, how can I survive best. And I very clearly understood that I survived best in the care of the whites. And it's so interesting to get those perceptions. And you were in, maybe not for that place and time, such an unusual situation, but most people would think of it as unusual, at least today, where your biological mom was there in the same home as your your German mom, um, well, you so see, in the, book, in the book, toward the end, that comes out. And that is why it reads like a mystery, because I was told things by the German family that they wanted me, what our parents tell us that they want us to believe, particularly adopted kids. They have a story about the birth mother and the reason why they are with the adoptive family. And so uh, that, too, that trajectory is an important one because toward the end I realized that my birth mother had been in the house and that situations in her life, you know, were such, her life and me in her life, that she had to walk away from me. 
but she always came by to visit. She and I hated it when she came by, but she never gave up. It was this black mother who said, "This kid is one day going to need to know who she is." And as long as I, as she sees, because there were no black people in Guatemala City at the time, okay. So she came and she she uh, she said, as long as she sees me, I bring her who she is, whether she likes it or not. And I thought it was extremely courageous of her to to, to do that. And uh, much later, I found out from my siblings who are younger than me how how hard it was for her. It was a financial hardship, and then, of course, it was an even bigger hardship because I rejected her so much. And and from the little, from the, the pieces that I was able to read, you had a lot of rejection going on early <laughs> of that yeah. biological mom. Um, I mean, it was, you were harsh on her, I have to say. And yet, as a child, you don't understand. You know, if you don't understand that that's your mom in your situation. You don't understand these different pieces and and your journey along the way was just it was fascinating to read about um like i said uh, what i caught of it because you would come across places where you didn't even know that you were black and and you didn't know you were different until you would walk through marketplaces or other things and people would look at you differently and they would show you that you were different by the way they were responding. And, um, you know, they yeah, just you know had what, to be... You know, and, and this is what's great. This is, on the one hand, what's great. Uh, you talk about the, the, um, the sweet and the bitterness. <laughs> you mentioned that. You yeah. know, have you found the sweet in, in your bitterness? And that was exactly it. They may have thought what they wanted, but I was with the Germans. They may have thought I had clean clothes. I looked like a gem, you know? So there was always that sweetness there. May have been bitter, but I'm better than you. (laughs) And my German parents raised me to think I was better, and they raised me to think I was not only better than anybody, I was better than all the German kids as well. So by the time... You know, I mean, you, by the time you look at a person, why is a person a snob? Oftentimes it's because it's been something that's been handed down. Because I was mm-hmm. a thorough, absolute snob. And, right, and I, you know, I look at me as a young child and I say, well, those were my coping mechanisms. You know, I needed to, how else could I have coped black in a white world and, um, and, uh, not have, you know, disintegrated or crumbled. I mean, it was my strength. It was the sweetness in my bitterness. Absolutely. And, you know, and it's interesting here again where it's so easy for us to put something on a race, and yet it never really is about that particular thing. It's about the, it's about the more, I would say, the energy or the vibration or what something is. And and you had an experience in one of these places of um, being very repulsed by somebody who was poor, 
um, that was there in the marketplace, one of the other kids, and wanted to get away from them. And what's interesting to me on a spiritual level with that is you naturally knew that was not the energy I wanted to connect with. And and I bring this up because it's not so much that, you know, that uh, you wouldn't have been caring about this child or connecting with them child to child, but it was the situation. It was the energy that they were living in that did not resonate for you. And I think if more of us could be aware of things that there's a fine line between making a judgment and not wanting a certain type of energy around us. That is true. Um, that may that that is the way we can look at it uh, as an adult, you know. Um, as the way I still see, even uh, looking at how I, from that point on, or perhaps even earlier from that point, uh, how I uh, became an anorexic child. And I didn't want to eat vegetables. I didn't want to eat things that came from the market. And I didn't just, I plainly didn't want to eat. So I was an extremely skinny child. And adoptees have eating disorders. It's in the book, but only someone who understands the eating disorder of an adopted child would get it. And that is a scene that basically takes you to it, you know, because I ate what they gave me because I was hungry, but I choked while I was swallowing. And um, mm-hmm. and it, it's it's pretty it's pretty deep. It may be the energy, it, whatever it was. It was something that not until I ended up in boarding school where they kind of force feed you that <laughs> 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 I gained some weight. When I came back the first year after boarding school, I came back after, you know, after the first uh, vacation, so the first, and they were all, the, the the maids were so happy to see me because they said, oh, you look so healthy, and my mother said, oh, my gosh, you're so round. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's what they do at boarding school. They force feed you to make sure that you go home nice and chubby. <laughs> but that's you know here again that's interesting because there is this whole aspect of we ingest not just the nutrients of food but we ingest the energy of what we're eating and yeah if yeah, we, we were to we pay attention so we're more aware something. of that now we're becoming yeah. so much more of that now you're absolutely right I just returned mm-hmm. from Wyoming and. Uh, what I love there, I mean, I had to take the shuttle from Denver all the way to uh, to Cheyenne, and you go, you go through this very, you're, you're not in the Rockies. I thought I would see the Rockies. Well, I saw the Rockies at the distance, but missed the plains, and herd of bison, herd of buffalo, herds. I mean, these. It's just so amazing, and you see these big animals just eating grass. There's nothing other. They're just walking around and 
eating grassy stuff, being perfectly content. And I, I said to myself, no wonder I eat buffalo meat and I don't eat anything else or make sure it's grass-fed beef. But, you know, there's a degree of contentment. And you're right when, when, when you say the energy. You know, the energy of what we eat, we need to pay attention to it, where it comes from. That's why it's best to grow our own food because we hopefully grow it with love. I just grow my vegetables with love. I was out there cursing them because they didn't come up, and then when they came up, the bunnies ate them. (laughs) 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 Bunnies, ground squirrels, chipmunks, everybody had a feast. (laughs) (laughs) It, It is really interesting, and to pay attention to these little things, and I think if we were to reflect back to these earlier years, we would probably understand some of these adversities that we struggle with or or where certain things came from um, that developed our thoughts and our our opinions along the way. And, um, you know, you just have, you have so many experiences in those books and so many things that I can can touch on. Um, But, you know, one of the things that, that you found out along the way in this journey was that if you had been a boy, you wouldn't have got the light you did. And how did it how did it feel to find that out? Uh, it was it didn't feel, you know. Um there are there's certain things I think that I um I also, this is what happens when you're separated from your birth mother. It is an incredible loss. And uh, the idea that it doesn't matter how rich or how poor she is, your emotional well-being is so intricately connected to that being, no matter whether she was, you know, no matter how she got you uh, and what she might think about having you. Um, it's, it's very, it, it's, the separation from that is enormous. I preface all this because I'm getting to the point where I find that I have an educated, um, I, I, you know, that I look at situations and I say, I really should feel sorry. How does it feel to feel sorry? How does it feel to feel sad? Because there's so much that early on was internalized as pain that you don't want to go there. The pain of the separation is so enormous that you don't want to go there. And I found that with innumerable amount of other peace, that we are people who have either too much empathy because we go there. I don't know if you can have too much empathy, but you know that you crumble at every situation or you have you have a backbone uh, that is, you know, like an iron rod and you don't crumble. And therefore, if you're not going to crumble, you're also not going to display emotion. And um, mm-hmm. and so that is, I, I'm, 
do you understand that? Do you get that, Jesse, somehow, that 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 separation is so extreme that you really are not an empathetic person? You, you know, you can yeah. learn empathy, but you you don't really know, is it is this what empathy is? And I'm trying to work on how would it have felt if I had loved my mother? You know, how would it have, how would I feel if I had loved her? I try to go there in meditations. I try, it's, my heart is so encrusted and I'm in there, as they say, you know, you're inside knocking to get out. But uh, certain parts of your heart are encrusted when it comes to the pain that you suffered and you don't want to go there. Well, and I think this is an interesting pain to to pinpoint for people because we've got the children that were adopted. Since then, there's very similar experiences going on with those children that had parents who separated um, along the way, and there's you know a distance there from one parent or the other. And then those children who maybe they they stayed with their mother but knew that they weren't wanted by that mother, you know, had the, yeah. still had the rejection of the mother going on. And I completely agree with you because I have had several people in my life who came from adopted situations. They were adopted along the way. They they didn't get to know their birth mother. Um, I had one friend that I can think of right off the top of my head who who was rejected twice because, first of all, they were rejected by their birth mother at birth, and then they went to seek out their birth mother, and the birth mother refused to have anything to do with that person. Yeah. And well, um, I mean, it is this person but, but you does, see, you know, they, right. they try, like, like you say, they try on an intellectual level to be feeling, but you can tell they're not really delved into that feeling. Yeah, right. And that is a, a survival mechanism. That is a decided survival society. You don't want to go to where the pain is so horrid. You just don't go there, period. I have um, another, while you were talking, it occurred to me. I have a friend who, uh, whose husband was extremely abusive and who beat the son. She had a boy and a girl. And this husband just beat the kid up, the boy, not the girl, but he beat the kid up, and sometimes the mother would get it as well. And I just never understood why she didn't leave him. Eventually, he left her. Well, okay, but that's another story. But the thing, her contention, I said, why don't you leave him? It's for the boy's sanity. It's for his well-being. And she says, this way he knows what his father was. If I leave him, you know, he will... But she must have had other reasons why she stayed with him. Perhaps she was fearful of income and, you know, that kind of stuff. But her her contention was, this way he knows what his father was like. He knows who his father was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's also with, uh, with a parent, you know. I don't know what my mother would have been like had she kept me. 
as a mother. You know, we all fantasize what they were when they're human. Yeah. You know, they're human. Oh, My yes. sisters will tell me a lot of things, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> I say whatever it's, because I all of a sudden don't know what else to say. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is, and they, and there's, you know, there are so many different thoughts behind it, and what's appalling to one person does make that total sense to somebody else, um, you know, that you you talk about, and, and there are those, those tough choices in that process. So yeah. what what was the turning point or the trigger point for you um, that led you to want to find out more about your birth parents? Uh, I didn't want to find out more about them. Um, I was in therapy for some two, two and a half years before I even admitted that I knew where my birth father was. And as far as, you know, um, my therapist was just made a dance of joy when that came up. Because I was, uh, you know, pussyfooting around, oh, well, I have all these problems with black people. <laughs> and... I don't understand how they do this, and I don't like their music, and I don't this, and I just sit there and complain and pontificate about things, and I back again always thinking that she was off kilter. But then when that happened, it took months from acknowledging I knew I knew where my father was to really connecting with him. And then once I connected with him, and once I once I connected with him, he was delightful, charming. He was so cool. He was the coolest of guys. Then when I met him, he was just absolutely me. I could see me in him, and I loved him instantly from that point on. Because, and even today, I'm, I'm you know he he passed away five years ago. Um, shy of being a hundred, a few months he would have made it to a hundred. But um, wow. yeah, he was he was, and and when he was, in, and I met him when he was eighty, uh, and uh, it he he was a young man, uh, you know, with everything, and he really liked to dress. He was a good-looking dude when he was young, and that stayed with him, and um, and so. From that point on, and then once I admit, once that happened, then I started li- not listening to my therapist, but I started becoming more curious. But it took years. It took years to get there because the German culture is an amazing culture, particularly the culture that I was raised in, which was the classical music you know, we would sit and we would listen to classical music with Beethoven and Bach and Schubert and Liszt and all of these European kind of types. And uh, I was read German literature. I'm writing a blog post now about the type of literature I read as a child and um, how that influenced or did not, but how that, that really created my world 
I was living in the tropics, and I had nostalgia for Northern Europe, <laughs> you know, for fog and rain and melancholy, and I loved it. And, of course, maybe all of that, and I'm writing about it, all of that may have had something to do with the melancholy I felt in my heart for not for having lost my mother. But, um, you know, that's, that's what I'm working on right now. I'm putting that piece together to um to to to, to highlight how powerful that nineteenth century German culture um is. You know, because it's still vibrant, you know, it doesn't go away, it's still there. You can, the books are there, the literature is there, the music is there, poetry is there, paintings are there, it's all there. Very different. Germany is quite different today, and it certainly was different, you know, into into the um, you know the Nazi period. And my Ger- my my German parents were not Nazis; they had nothing to do with it. Um, and they lived in the tropics. My my father moved to Guatemala in 1905, so that was you know very much Victorian. Sentiments. My German mother was a Victorian woman. I wrote about that. When you see Downton Abbey, that show, well, that's like the Dowager. Well, perhaps not necessarily the Dowager, but um, you know, those women were my German mother. It, it is really interesting, and and I think the people I know that have come out of that culture are very strong individuals. You know, there's very strong sets of standards and ideals and things, and um, and yet they're very real people at the same time. Uh, it, so yeah, it's a fascinating culture, and it, I mean, your story is just one of those that that is intriguing because of these different cultures you grew up in and were exposed to many people would consider very different um, it, it, along the way, you know. Uh, and and so it's interesting to see where you've brought things together and brought in these different aspects. Now, uh, one of the things that you also mentioned in your, in your writings is that it was when you received a camera that it started to change your perspective about skin color. Oh, yeah, that was, though we were kids, you know, we were nine, ten years old with Putsi. She's still one of my best friends. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, well, you know, you get a brownie camera and you're there, but it just shows that, you know, one thinks, kids think. Yeah? It's not just, oh, well, these are the pictures, but Oh no, we we sat there and we looked and we saw. Oh wow, you are white in the negative and you are black in the negative. You know, you're black in the positive and you are white in the positive. And then of course we wanted to see well what do brown people look like? But these are all these things that a nine ten year how old was I? How old when did these cameras come up? Anyway. Um, that is that is how how we saw how I 
because we looked at each other and we saw we were different and then we saw that we were completely different in the negative, kids today don't know what negatives are, negatives and positives of photographs. You know, they have color photos and you just don't see what a black and white negative is and what black and white positive is. And so just simply that type of ruminating, you know, that type of, oh, wow, how do brown people look? Whoa, and then, of course, Catholicism comes in, you know, with, yeah, maybe the black ones in reality are angels and the white ones are devils and the brown <laughs> ones are repertory. <laughs> oh, my gosh, I love that little piece. I love writing it because that's exactly how it was. You know, Martha walks by, we run for Ruth photographs. Ruth didn't know why she had to photograph the three of us together, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And it is very fun to explore these things as a child. And, of course, we put them in these these various terms. But I oftentimes do this. Like I, I look back at something and I remember where I was as a child, but then I look back on it from today's eyes and I go, wow, there's some really profound things in that, in something as simple as a photograph and that's negative. And realizing that, you know, we all carry the different colors. (laughs) We all are that. And, you know, it's just in one form we show one way, in another form we show another way. And it makes me think of that kind of yin-yang thing we've got the other always inside of us and um and it takes something like a negative to to show it to us you know to show us that we have this other piece or this other aspect there um in it but i think that that's you know that's fun that that really started to to shift your perspective that, oh, okay, maybe I'm not such a, a bad person if I have the skin color or, you know, whatever it is um, in there. And, and it seems like you had a very healthy grasp on things as a child. As you said, a lot of that has to do with your upbringing, of your worth being reinforced in your, your family that you were raised in. And... Um, you know, and that's a big thing. And, and it was interesting because um, you also mentioned around that time or, or when you were younger that you had a, an experience in school that um, you deliberately started sabotaging your grades because you were oh, associated yeah, with something that I said that to Ruth, my German sister, when she read that passage, because she read big chunks of split, and when she read that passage, she said, that's what happened. We were always wondering how from one day to the next your grades dropped. And it was amazing because here we are talking about that 60 years later or, you know, almost 70 years, 65 years later. They were always wondering how come this brilliant kid in school from one day to the other and never to recover from it, you know? It was one of these things. Even when I went to college, I said to my, here in the States, 
I said to one of the deans, I said, well, look, you don't really need an education. All you need is connection. And he laughed. He said, no, you need an education. Then I said, okay. (laughs) But I knew now, I mean, yeah, really what you need is connection. And I was deep deep in old age already practically. Well, it's amazing just those associations that we create in our head, you know, as you did there in that situation of this aspect of, oh, no, I'm not taking a scholarship because, you know, that's what poor people do, and I'm not going to be associated with poor people. (laughs) Yeah, right, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's... I, I was, uh, you know, it was bad enough that there, that I couldn't do anything about my exterior appearance, but I could do something uh, inwardly to be a little more white, and by that I needed to be mediocre. It's wow. amazing. It, it, it really is amazing, and I think that that is part of the reason the book is so successful, because even, you know, as for adults and for younger people, that just kind of have a sense of, and that's why you know, in social work and in identity and and uh, in social sciences, they use it in college because they go through these, you know, psychology departments. They go through these, they they, they go through the every single little bit in the childhood is so indicative to what that person ends up experiencing as life goes on. And I have to say, I'm amazed myself at how well it came out. I didn't know. You know, I just simply wanted to get it out and get it finished because I had said that for so many years, oh, I've written this book, I've written this book, I'm getting it out, and 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 I never got it out because I was always dissatisfied with how it read and how it was. And it was more complex. I had to break it up. I had to rewrite the sequence of the book. And then that's what I published. But it was a much more complex plot before. And um, and that is, you know, uh, 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 that, that is what makes it so accessible to be able to follow the, the issues the child presents through to adulthood uh, and then come to a point where... <clears throat> the whole thing starts collapsing because the universe brought me to the States. Had I stayed in Germany, it would not have happened. But the whole thing started collapsing here in a way that was most traumatic and at the same time beneficial. There you go again with your bitterness and your sweetness and your bitterness. Uh, At the same time beneficial because, you know, it came to an embrace of somebody that I didn't know existed, and that's me. Yeah, and and yeah, there there is so much there. <laughs> there is just so much there as I I think about those things, right. and there's you know there's big lessons, there's little lessons, um, and I think this is one of those things that brings us. I think in society where we've really got to get back, we, we avoid communications a lot today in my observations, um, and yet we need to get back to really paying attention, paying attention to our children, paying attention 
to these types of shifts, like you made these dramatic shifts, and talk with them about what is going on, what is this connection, what is this change about, um, you know, it's okay to choose change, but children don't just change in a split second or a day unless there's a reason to a lot of times, you know. Um, yes. And and paying attention to those things. And so often at times these things do go on and on before somebody goes, why is this happening <laughs> along the way? Yeah, you see, that that is so interesting because the children change very quickly. It's just that the world around them doesn't get it that they've changed or that they yeah. have whatever is going through their mind that that is going to occasion change or what they experienced, what they saw or how they were treated, that that's going to bring about change and that's going to bring about a different perception until years later or months later, you know, but certainly a much later. So it's, it has something to do with being an adult and being dense. <laughs> you know, we overthink things. We overthink things. And we, we're just, we're lovely, but we're dense as adults. We don't quite get it because it's that, you know, kids think much more than we give them credit for. That's why I, I'm scared of kids. You know, I look at little children and, oh, no, here's another one of those monsters. They know more than I do. <laughs> Well, and and they do because they're not wrapped up in some of the other distractions that adults are, so they have a whole ton of time to think about it. They're very much in the moment. And on one hand, they do get in these emotions in the moment from, okay, I don't like what's happening, I'm going to cry and I'm going to bawl, and then in the next moment it's like, okay, we're best friends again. Yeah, They're very right, in right. the moment, so it can be hard to tell when they're uh, really made a shift in something and there's something going on that needs to come out and when they're just not liking that particular moment <laughs> of things. But they have the time to think about it. That's what they do. That's That's their whole life in a sense because they don't have all these other things to worry about and contend about like paying bills or keeping a rep over their head. You know, they leave that to the adults to take care of um, Mm -hmm. in a sense. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you mentioned that you've had to deal with a lot of rejection along the way. And, And I'm want you to maybe share a little bit about how you dealt with that, how you've handled it. Because in your book you mentioned this hit really hard with somebody by the name of Rudolph, who was Ruth's husband. Yes. Um Rudolph was one of these odd characters. And um he was a very educated man, um, and um, he and Ruth waited for years and years for the war to be over. I think they got engaged, and then the war came, so I think there were 12 years in which she just waited for him to come back, and he came back, and uh, all the time I was, uh, he came back when I was um 
10, I guess, yes. And um, and he, um, I, I had glorified him, the way Ruth always talked about him in such wonderful terms and how much she longed for him. And I, I used to adore Ruth, and she was my German mother's daughter who was older than birth mother. Um, and... Um, but she was an amazing nurturer. She was a really, really wonderful person while I was little. Afterwards, the relationship changed. But uh, she was wonderful. And when he came back, he actually didn't see me. And I was accustomed that people made a fuss over me. Um, and Rudolph was the first person who didn't make a fuss over me. Not only that, um, my German father had bought a grape drink. It was a colorful grapet, grape soda. I was not a child that had soda, and there was no soda in the house, but grapet, I love grapet, and my father, in celebration of the fact that Rudolph was coming, um, had champagne cocktail for all the adults and grapette for me. And I was, by the time we arrived from the airport to the house, I already noticed that Rudolph had not even looked at me the entire time. And we are, you know, the, the maid came around and suggested, what would you like to drink? And I said, I'd like a grapette. And he, who had ignored me, turns around, looks at me, split second, and says, and you drink that trash too. Well, you know, that garbage. And I was mortified. That's another thing they didn't know. That's another thing Ruth didn't know when she read that. You know, I, I hated him forever because of that. Uh, because it was something that, like black people, like brown people, they would drink some a colorful drink like that. Europeans wouldn't touch that. That's how I internalized it. I have to laugh because my his grandchildren, the kids from Ruth and his um, two sons, you should see those kids guzzling the most obnoxious-looking soda drinks. <laughs> <laughs> I always laugh, and then you know, I say, I can't believe you kids are drinking that. If Rudolph would see it, heaven knows what he would say. But and and of course, it's funny because he died when um, his his oldest son was sixteen, and the other one was fourteen, and um, and his grandchildren didn't know much about him. His children didn't know much about him. And once they read Split at the Root, they said, oh, we know more about him. And since then I've been filling them in. You know, I said, I didn't hate him as much. I mean, I he was an amazing, he, he just loved to see me read. And he would, you know, I he was an, an amazing educator. He taught me so much about music and and, and literature and a great sense of art, art books. I had just about the most beautiful art books thanks to him. And, um, you know, 
I, I became a teacher in art history. So he was very much someone who formed my aesthetic sense of German culture. But, uh, yeah, that sense of rejection. I, there was one person I wanted to have been accepted by, it was him, and he didn't at the time. Afterwards, he accepted me, of course, perfectly well. How I internalized it, that was a different story, and I hated him forever for it. And, you know, and those are the differences of learning that, you know, somebody wasn't necessarily doing something a certain way or intending that, but, you know, we internalize things. We personalize it, we internalize it, we take it a certain way, and then we hold on to those grudges. And, and that's. Um, yeah, and that's yeah. trying to please others, you know. I wanted to be so German because I thought maybe they'll give me away if I'm not German enough. Maybe I'll end up living with the black people if I'm not German enough. I needed to be perfect in my own eyes. And that smidgen of imperfection that he presented to me, probably there was no intention, there was no evil intention in that at all, except that was kind of his personality. I realized that as an adult. I can analyze him much better. But, um, yeah, that was decidedly uh, part of who am I and I need to please you, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's adoptees have that much more than others. Everyone has issues. Adoptees have twice as many. Well, and we all do. And, you know, I think what's been so great in you writing this book, you you bring out these different things, these different aspects that sometimes we forget about and then we sit in our adult lives going, where did this come from? <laughs> you know, what was it faced we don't deal with some of these various aspects um, that are there and it's and it is amazing what we can hold on to along the way or what creates that trigger and then all of a sudden something will happen later in life and then triggers again. And it's like where did that come from? Um but uh, yeah. Your journey in this book to me, Katana, is just its really something to, to learn about. And I think there's so many insights in there. I think there's so many pieces to everything um, in your book. Well, and I layers appreciate of- very much the way you have presented it because what you have done is is outstanding when it comes to these are the issues that are developed later on, but this is how they're presented. So you've got a very clear grasp of presenting, you know, issues in split that later on become a problem for the adult. So you were not looking at the adult having to go back to how come that happened. You know what I'm trying to say? You saw the issues in the child. You understood the issues okay. in the child as they developed. And that's what you presented, and I appreciate that very much. Thank you. My my pleasure to do it that way. And, and, and I think that is something that we have to remember because, 
you know, as adults, we've just connected um, so much and gotten wrapped into the material world so much. The programming isn't necessarily happening there unless we're having continuing repeating circumstances, but it is back in those early childhood years, back around that four or five range um, that the, the programming hits in because at that point, we're still this open vessel. We're still wide open with what the world is about and we're absorbing and we're taking everything in and we don't have all of these distractions that we have as an adult. And so, like like all children, we absorb everything. We notice these little details and we notice these little pieces. And, and, and I encourage people in some of the work I do, I said, think back. I said, Right now, you might be drawing a blank, and even if you're drawing a blank, there's something there that is triggering. And then, you know, but any little piece, any phrase, and it's amazing how, as that starts to unfold, and people delve into one little piece, then another piece, then the next thing they know, oh yeah, I remember I wasn't listening to my parents, and bam, I fell right out of that truck and on my head, <laughs> you know, and. And yeah, right. it does come back when we open up to it, but um, that receptivity, you know, it's that point right in there that if we ever want to get past an issue, I always I always encourage people, let's go back and take a look. What were the phrases? Even if they meant well, there can be things encoded in there that... Um, the that I call them. I call those things indoctrinations because they they're just usually pretty subliminal. Sometimes it's just a mm-hmm. look. But the people, yeah. So much can be said with a look, and the reason is why so much is said with a look. Um, the reason is that you interpret the look. And the way the look was intended was not the way you interpret it. And and also, I think too, as children, we live in those young age ranges. We live in a very emotional space, as opposed to the head space. As adults, it's kind of like okay this is the logic, this is the reason, this is, you know, I'm going to disconnect from these feelings. I don't have feelings so much as an adult type of thing. And we rationalize a lot of things away. As children, we don't do that. We don't stop and think, oh, maybe they didn't intend that. What we do is we we have an emotion, and then that emotion automatically gets attached, as you say, to that facial gesture or that tonation in the voice. And I think that's also what kind of locks it in. Um, and then maybe it goes quiet until some other point later in life and it comes out. Yes, uh-huh. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's interesting um, how complex children are and how, uh, I mean, I look at my son who is biracial, and he he's just amazing on so many levels. And he is my teacher, 
on even more levels. Um, what what when when we talk about his childhood and me as a mother, I cringe. I tell myself, oh, how could I have been so controlling? How could I have, oh, you know, I just about, I could just about crawl somewhere under the bed into a cave and not come out for 10 days. Um, and he will say that he felt very protected by my protectiveness, that he felt very secure by the way that, you know, that I, that I took care of him and that I was really an, an outstanding mother. But I oftentimes think that I was the type of, you know, you worry, what type of mother am I? The mother who could walk away or the mother that overprotectively protected, like my German mother, you know? And the mother who walked away also never gave up. So it's, it, it, it's one of these things. How are we as adults? How, how do we see ourselves and, and how, what kind of shortcomings do we feel we have based on how, you know, we perceive those who, who formed us or who um, molded us in a way? Because I, I, yes. I talk with him a lot about identity. And he understands, and he understands my journey all sometimes better than I do. He says, "Look, Mama, I've been observing you for since I was born. I have been observing you, and this and this and this is how you do it." And it's, it's funny because now I have an adult. He's forty-two, forty-one years old, and he's and you know he kind of sits me down like a child. <laughs> he says, "Okay, focus." <laughs> Well, it's it's amazing how people outside of ourselves can point out things that we're just not aware of. <laughs> or right, yeah. Together. We're too hard on ourselves sometimes. Oftentimes, oftentimes, when you talk about the parental role, am I too much, am I not enough, and boy, you can do the same thing, and for one, it's too much, and for the other, it's not enough. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. When we look at you know, you have shared some beautiful insights with us today. Is there anything that you want to share in closing or in summary? And I want to make sure that you also tell people how they can get hold of you if they want to, where they can get your book, um, and share with them your website. Oh, um, thank you very much for the opportunity, Jesse. Um I would love people to read my blog. <laughs> um, I put a lot of effort into it. It is a continuation of Split, uh, in, in not as far as the story is concerned, but as far as the development of the person is. So I'm continuing to develop. I'm continuing to grow, continuing to, um, to mature. Uh, while I was uh, all, I was uh, you know I've been go- I've gone through so many different stages of being superficial, materialistic, uh, and then becoming an intellectual, uh, and looking at the various me's that uh, that have been there. One of the things that 
anyone who wants to connect with me has to realize that as old as I am, I am not that old because I'm constantly reinventing myself. So I'm always in a stage of reinvention. Had I been an actress, I would be an old actress. Had I stayed a professor, I'd be an old professor. But because I'm constantly looking at new ways. So my blog has to do with the development of uh, of a person who is becoming increasingly more introspective uh, and wiser because of that, uh, looking at wisdom in, in old age, having greater patience with people. I My life is pretty much the life of a hermit, uh, and by that I mean someone who lives on the top of the hill like the tarot card, uh, is uh, and has a lantern, so it's the light of wisdom, and at the top of the hill in the evening, this is toward the end of life. Uh, and time to, to, to kind of go through what goes through the mind of someone who thinks and is by themselves without any um, bitterness because that is certainly not what you do. When you get older, you can be very bitter. You can look for, you know, at blaming people. I take full responsibility for where I am in life because I believe I've created my life um, with the blessings that were given to me. So I would love people to have a look. If it's still in construction, I'm still writing the, the part of about me uh, in uh, in the katana tully.com blog website and um, it's katana c-a-t-a-n-a t-u-l-l-y dot com Um, if you want more about me you can find more in my my books website and that is split at the root dot com um, there's more about me there. There's also information as to where you can get the book. The book is available on Amazon as an ebook and as a paperback book. Um, and um, I would love to hear from you if you read the book. I'd love to hear from you if you wish to communicate with me. And you can do that on either of the two websites. There's a place where you contact me, and I will very gladly get back uh, to you. And I would love it if you read the blog posts and um, added your commentary to them. They have to do with identity. They have to do with seeking and finding and, um, and connecting with spirit. Um, uh, my most recent one is um, a flower that does not bloom in this time of year forced itself to offer me one white bloom, and the bloom opened on my husband's 10th anniversary of his death. So I, and I certainly see that as a gift from beyond. So that's yes. basically what I am, uh, you know, what I am looking at. You know, even. Um, the blog about my husband's 10th anniversary has to do with living and having lived in their life. If, if we, you know, from a premise that there definitely is life after death, 
what kind of a life did you lead before death? Is was there life before death? And that is something that we can all kind of start thinking about, regardless of how old we are. How are we living our life? How are we? Um, what is important? You know, are we living according to what we consider important, and what do we need to shed in order to be and become more satisfied with our purpose? So, Katana, with a C, T U L L Y dot com, or split at the root, and then you can get a lot of information. And thank you, Lucia. Opportunity. Well, you're very welcome, and I think I think reinventing the self constantly is a big piece. Who's making those adjustments and shifts? And I'm very very pro that. And Katana, it has been a huge pleasure to have you on the show and having you share these works and and the additional insights that go with your book there. And I I do encourage people. So thank you very much for sharing your time with us today here. Thank you, Jesse Ann. Appreciate that. Very and coming up, coming up next week, we are going to have with us Moni Dojeji and Alberto Avrasso, and they're going to be sharing their work in what's known as Walking for Peace. And I'll tell you, they are doing some interesting work going all around the world doing literally a walk for peace, and it's going to be fun to delve into what they're doing, a little more lighthearted uh, aspects going on for our show next week. And again, you can find out the work I'm doing, whether you want to connect with the books that I've put out or whether it is uh, tuning into the monthly videos that I produce or the events that I have going on on the Compassion Tour, whatever the monthly special is, things like that. All of those things, as well as our archive shows, not only for myself but for other shows on our network, can be found on my website, jessianenicholsgeorgethenumberone.com. You've got multiple ways to connect with me through different social media as well, um, which is an, an opportunity there. And the May special, by the way, talking of that, is if you participate in any full day or full weekend event during the month of May or June, um, you will receive a free set of my Activating Compassion books. So definitely take advantage of that. Um, that's a nice little bonus to have on there. And again, just jump over to the website, jessianniclesgeorgethenumberone.com, and I'll have the information on there for you. Don't forget we've got several shows here on Main Street Universe throughout the week. Monday nights is Wendy Goldberg doing Vedic Astrology. Tuesdays is Susan Lee sharing her work in Herbs and Natural Plants. And Wednesday nights we have... Daniela and Janice running our flagship show, Main Street Universe, that's backed up oftentimes by Spiritual Insights with Darren Bucare. Um, Daniel has made it back from a wonderful tour with his band Dragon's Head, which I'm hoping to bring to you coming up soon next month. And uh, Randy's back from touring, so everybody's kind of coming back now. <laughs> and that's great. We're also going to have Kevin Baird. You might remember him as being on our network. He's going to be coming on this summer to our show, showing some really fun stuff that he's doing. This is Jesse Ann Nichols-George. Thank you so much for being here today. And thanks to all of our listeners, not only on Blog Talk Radio, but those that are streaming live on Penn, known as Parent Counters Network, 
Stream Finder, and Fox Stream Live, and those catching our podcast at iTunes, TuneIn.com, as well as the YouTube version of our show. I look forward to seeing you back here next week as we go more into activating compassion. And don't forget, if you've enjoyed my show today, share it with others. It's going to be available at the same link in our archives. And I'm going to be leaving you with the song today, Yearning For, also known as Over and Over by Shenshai. Thank you so much, and I look forward to seeing you again next week right here on Activating Compassion Radio. May you enjoy the rest of your weekend and have a truly amazing week. And if I could see what makes me blind I would soar to the edge of my mind And to touch what seems unreal Just to show you the way that I feel And we are in time with time One with season of change inside And we are in tune with the two Caught in a balance of sun and moon Oh, deep inside The light within Shining to show you It's here to begin When all I have Is all I need I will soar to the edge of eternity in the back.
Still burning, deep in your face. 